the Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the professor and my co-host is a DJ. How have you been going, DJ? I've been good. I've been good. I've just been uh, enjoying myself watching uh, the Milk Crate Challenge videos that's been popping up the internet these days. Oh, boy. (laughs) Look, I know you're pretty dumb sometimes, but please tell me you're not that dumb. What I just I I just want to see the fun and the 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 hype and all this the fanfare and everything. Just don't try to do it. Oh, I'm not gonna do it. No hell no. <laughs> but uh, with all the with all the with all the people screaming in pain after after doing that, like <laughs> I don't want to do it. Good. I mean, it's not even for a worthy cause, if I recall. Not like the ice bucket challenge. No, the ice bucket challenge was significantly less likely to harm you than the milk crate challenge. Like, there might have been one or two people who had heart attacks or, or hypothermia or something, but I don't think I've seen a single uh, Milk Crate Challenge video where somebody hasn't gotten hurt. But speaking of hurting people, <laughs> our first topic tonight is about aggression in video games, and it's not what you're probably thinking. You're probably thinking we're going to go on with that tired old argument about whether games cause violence. I can, I, I can hear Jack... Uh, a- Jack coming, looking out in the window, going, "Want someone talking about me?" Yeah, screw that guy. <laughs> and that organization, Mothers Against Video Games, or whatever it was called. Oh yeah, yeah. So I've come across this uh, paper on the connection between real-world circumstances and online player behavior, specifically in Eve Online. So they've gone through Eve Online and collected data based on the violent acts and the economic acts that players engage in. So violent acts are obviously killing people, uh, fighting enemies. Economic acts are trading and collecting resources. And I found some really interesting correlations here. So it's not clear which way around goes, but people who live in a place that is more violent are less aggressive in video games. So is that because they're using it as an escapism from their real-world problems? Or is it because video games are the um, people who are violent in video games then don't go out and kill people in real life? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, normally people people play video games as a form of escaping, and they well, you would assume that they know that you ca- you cannot kill people in real life because it's illegal. Well, not just because it's illegal, because it's kind of a mean thing to do. Yeah. Well, what are the other findings? Like, they uh, killing people is pretty bad. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So what other findings did they find in that in, in that report besides this nugget? Um. Ah, uh, there's a line I missed uh, when I read it earlier. Uh, we have observed the positive relation between in-game aggressiveness against NPCs and real-world aggressiveness. <laughs> so there's actually a difference depending on whether you're interacting with a human or an NPC. People who are more um, from more violent countries tend to be more violent to NPCs. <laughs> so wait, so from people from more wait, let me get this right. People from more violent countries. And tend to be more violent towards the NPCs. But not to other humans. Okay. They're less violent to other humans. So uh, maybe we should be keeping an eye on the uh, kinds of people who like to make houses full of their enemies in The Sims. 
Oh, that that'd be funny. Can you imagine like uh, a game of Mortal Kombat? Like when in, when you're playing with friends, it's like it's all normal and kosher and 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 everything professional. But when your friends are not there, it's like die, 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 you friend, die, friend. I you we win all the time, and I die, 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 die. Yeah, that's true. You play Mortal Kombat. <laughs> um, I'm going to just move and not tell you where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> they also analysed trading data. So people from countries with higher unemployment and weaker currencies are more efficient and money conscious in game, which kind of makes sense. If you happen to live in a situation where you have to be careful with your money, you're probably going to see that carry over to role playing as well. But they also found out that people who live in countries with weaker currency earn more in game money. And their theory for that is that it's because in EVE Online, you can pay for your membership using um, in-game currency. I'm not sure how that works now, because EVE went uh, at least partially free-to-play a few years ago. Um, but this study is based on data from, I think, 2011 to 2016. Um, so it's a few years old, but uh, I might have those dates wrong. I'm just trying to find them again. Mind you, though. So around, if I recall, around that time there were a couple of uh, big contests. I remember um, Eve Online had a tournament which co- which were, had a prize money worth a million dollars, if I recall. Okay, I don't recall that one. In a second. Yeah, it's the million dollar battle. It was really hyped up, and uh, is that because yeah, you people were winning money, or because it has a million dollars worth of ships in it? Because technically, you can calculate the real-world value of a ship in um, in Eve. Because the you can tell that you know ten thousand of the in-game currency ISK. Uh, funnily enough, same acronym as the Icelandic krona, and the devs are from Iceland, so they clearly think that in the far future, Iceland will take over space. <laughs> but yeah, they. But yeah, the result was uh, it turned out to be. Four mil, uh, four thousand dollars short. Okay. Oh, yeah. So like a few hundred. Um, so you can calculate. You know, if a ship costs you, say, a million isk, then you can calculate how many months of membership that would be equivalent to, and then work out a real world equivalent value. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, this was in twenty eighteen, mind you. So, uh, not not within the realms of the study then. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so when you see articles about massive battles with millions of dollars worth of ships, that's the thing that they're talking about. And the other question would be, why Eve Online? Like, you could have done more, much. You could have done a much better study, like if it was FIFA, for example. Well, FIFA is a much more constrained game. Eve is a kind of sandbox. You can do whatever you want. You can be a pirate. You can be a soldier. You can be a a trader or a miner. So it's more about researching what people choose to do in the game. Whereas in FIFA, you're obviously a soccer player. That's it. Yeah. But there is, but with FIFA, you can get, there is a lot of money like uh, generated with that game alone. I mean, look at the ultimate team option, for example. There is, but that's nothing to do with the uh, study they're doing here. That's true. That's true. Yep. That's true. I think you'd likely see a um, 
a correlation that people from poor countries don't spend as much on Ultimate Team, but that's a pretty uh, common sense thing. Probably still worth researching because a lot of common sense things... Oops, just dropped my keyboard. A lot of common sense things are not common sense and don't ref- reflect reality. So it's still worth um, yeah. researching things. So, uh, so what are the other t- other stuff they've explored in the article? Uh, so, it's really just the violence and the economics. I'm surprised not many organizations have taken a have uh, done announcements when this report came out. I don't think anybody really cares. It's a fairly academic topic. So, apart from the people who want to make video games look bad by tying every school shooter to video games Um, because this actually makes video gamers look good if video gamers tend to be less violent than people in real life there is though a study that they've linked in their uh, references Um, violent video games and real world violence rhetoric versus data Uh, in the US violent crime decreases in response to the release of violent video games (laughs) So this whole notion of like, oh, video games cause violence. This this whole report and just bl- just get um, blasts that narrative out of the window, basically. Well, the uh, violent video games report does. Yeah. This one doesn't, obviously. Uh, from a game developer standpoint, when you see reports like these, do you uh, does it affect you in a in a big sense or in a no, and they're like, eh, it's, I already knew this. I think the main impact might be in marketing. Uh, if you're seeing that people are less violent in video games uh, when they live in a violent place, maybe there's a correlation to be found there that they're more likely to play like chill games like Stardew Valley or Animal Crossing that don't have violence in them. But that would be a probably a separate study. Um, would it also affect the game's rating, um, games ratings as a whole. No, no. Um, I don't think it will. I think we're um, a long way from seeing any further changes in the rating systems, uh, because the people in charge of the rating systems tend to be older and not as receptive to making change to begin with, as evidenced by the many year-long battle to get an R18 rating for video games in Australia. Oh, don't get me started on that drama. <laughs> get you started? Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, it's um a case of right, studies like this show that violent video games don't have an impact on making people violent, which you could maybe argue should mean that violent video games can be rated for younger children. But you're still going to get the think of the children people who don't want that four-year-old playing GTA 5. And yes, GTA 5 is almost certainly not appropriate for a four-year-old. But the people who um, you'd have to convince to get that sort of change made, I don't think could be interested in hearing that. And I don't know that we really need to. I mean, the R18 rating um, is now a thing in Australia. I think they're still a bit tight with it. There are games that can't be sold here because even though we have R18, they're still banned because um, 
They're so abhorrent. Most of them aren't that bad. But you reckon this uh, th- this report will give them a bit more would give the ratings boards a bit more wiggle room in terms of like, okay, this may uh, give us some. Not like, immediately. You... Not immediately. No, give it another ten or twenty years. Hopefully, the um, people in uh, the people in the bureau and responsible for classification around the world will cycle out and be replaced by younger people with more open views about this. But I think we need to wait for that to happen first, hmm. because I think that's been one of the big uh, things holding back things like the R18 rating in Australia, that the the Bureau is a bunch of people, like older people. So they're clearly not going to be in touch with what the younger people are thinking. And it's definitely improved in the past 10 years since I first started learning about it. But the, um, the Bureau still t- tends to lean pretty conservative on ratings. Yeah. I do think it's really interesting, though, seeing how people react to events in games compared to how they their real world scenario is and i think it could could have value maybe in some psychological treatment um because i'm aware of people who become addicted to games because they feel like it's an area they have control over that's a a thought that i've heard uh a couple of times when i've researched games addiction and it does seem to be something that I think would tie into this because if you feel like you have no control in your real life because there's anarchy on the streets, your currency is worth nothing, maybe you're more likely to get sucked into a game. So maybe it would uh, help psychologists treat that, but I really don't know what the other real-world applications of this could be. Marketing and psychology, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's I can also maybe put some put some uh, something out there in terms of it could also um how do I put this it could also bl- um like take out the whole um take out the blurry line between like what's what really happens but um in the life of a gamer and you know how it, when we always when media always portray the gamers as like oh a bunch of smelly old dudes in the basement play. Um, eating chips on the eating chips on the on a table and shit and stuff like that, which hasn't and, been true for decades. Yeah, yeah, and like, I think this, statistically, uh, if you count all games, including mobile games, the average gamer is like a thirty-five-year-old woman, but middle-aged women tend to drift towards uh, casual games like those Facebook games, Farmville, and all that, and mobile games like Candy Crush. Whereas there's also a demographic shift into action games as with younger people. Yeah. I, I think this report will just take blow that narrative out of the window in terms of, oh, video games causes violence. Nope, this report just basically just disproves your argument right there. No, I don't think so. You don't? No, I don't think it's um, it really proves that at all. I do think, though, that... Uh, it would be really interesting to see this applied to more areas. So now we've covered violence and aggression and economics. Uh, I'd really like to see the same sort of study done on other other topics. 
Like, are people who come from countries with good healthcare more likely to play medics? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just coming up Please with random someone. ideas now. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, all those uh, countries playing uh, surgeon, si- uh, surgeon Simulator? I'm like, oh, here we go. Well, maybe people in the US play the uh, really hardcore surgeon simulators, like the, the actual accurate ones, to learn how to do their own <laughs> surgery so they don't have to go into debt. <laughs> Can you imagine like uh, being hi- being hired by the uh, mobsters like uh, to be the doctor? It's like how long have you been doing this uh, medical thing for? Uh, I haven't been doing much. I've, I just learned it from playing uh, Surgeon Simulator. Well, it depends. If it was Surgeon Simulator, I would hope not. Uh, they were not doing my medicine. But <laughs> if it was one of the more specific ones, like the um, that game that was actually designed to train doctors the triage then i'd feel a lot more comfortable do you reckon they should have explored the other games instead besides eve online though i mean i think i might have circled this i might have asked that question earlier but yeah um yeah i think eve is a good choice because it has that variety um i'm not sure of any other games where you could have done that sort of economic simulation i am aware of other studies using games to simulate things um, there's the infamous corrupted blood incident in World of Warcraft. So in 25 words or less, not actually counting, um, a curse that a monster could put on you, corrupted blood, well, one of the bosses, could put a curse on you called corrupted blood, which would cause you to take damage over time. This was a fairly high-level dungeon, but people figured out that if you got corrupted blood on you, and then teleport it out of the dungeon, it wouldn't reset and you would still have corrupted blood. So trolls would go and get corrupted blood and then run through town spreading corrupted blood to everyone they could. And we thought that was extremely unlikely people would run around spreading COVID to each other. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people were, uh, well, I, were, quite, were comparing this to the COVID-19 um pandemic and boy uh, there is some eerie eeriness <laughs> yeah i i mean the, okay i mean there are some other games like they could have explored like cod where even <laughs> like the like the amount of what amount of craziness that happens in that game or um, madden well, for COD's example just one thing it's just shooting people you can't like choose not to shoot people the thing is, the, the games that you pick to study need to be games where you can choose not to take part in a particular part of the loop. But COD is such a, a tight, directed experience, I don't think you could draw any useful conclusions from it. Because it's either kill people or be killed. And nobody plays a game like COD to be killed. Yeah. yeah. I do like the um, uh, Corrupted Blood incident, though, that people were actually going into towns and spreading it, but there were also people going into towns and healing people. <laughs> so we actually had people playing medics and uh, trying to prevent the spread. And, you know, I remember when I, the first time I read about it, people were like, no, this isn't realistic at all because it's a game. Nobody cares if you die. But it was an interesting experiment nonetheless. Yeah, it's interesting. Um and that section that's been added to the Wikipedia page about comparison to COVID-19 is pretty interesting. 
uh, one of the authors of the study said that um, they've they they've built models of certain, the social construction of risk perception, and they don't think they would have gotten that wrap their head around it quite as easily if they hadn't researched the corrupted blood incident. So at the end of it, so should there be more studies to this? I mean, I mean, you might have asked. Yes. You might... I want more studies into this sort of topic. I want to know more about how people react to things in game based on their real world experiences. And I wonder if the corrupted blood incident had happened in another year or two rather than back in 2005, if people would react differently because of COVID. Mm. But that's all takes a lot of work to do. You need to find a game that's popular and has a wide reach like EVE or World of Warcraft. You need an incident like that. It's hard to engineer that sort of scenario without tainting your data. Well, okay, there, there, there will be other games, like uh, maybe Animal Crossing, for one. Uh, um, what's another? Uh, what's yes, another which uh, character in Animal Crossing is most likely to be trapped on a single tile by players <laughs> who hate that character? I don't know. <laughs> or, but anyway, or, we should or, move or, it along. What's, uh, yeah. What have you got for us tonight, DJ? True, true, true. I was going to say, or, or we, we could always, there is always Roblox. <laughs> Yes, Roblox coming up later. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you have a story about uh, Roblox and how there is drama behind that. Yeah, but first we're going to do the Nirvana, baby. <laughs> oh, wait, give me a sec. Have you, have you read the show notes that you wrote? Yeah, because uh, it was actually uh, the games then, Roblox then, Nirvana, baby. That's what I wrote. What? Well, no, it's not, because I've got the thing here you sent me that says first video games, then Nirvana, then Roblox. Ah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I, I boomed so badly. Yeah, I boomed so badly this time. Alright, so... Give me a sec. Ah, it's always fun when I can't even get the DJ to pay attention to what he's done himself. I know. <laughs> like, seriously, your memory is so bad. Ah, what's up, Sunday? What's that? I can't hear you! <laughs> Back in my day, video games didn't cause violence! Anyway, the Nirvana baby. Who uh, is no yes. longer a baby, to be so, clear. <laughs> so, the, uh, so, you know the Nirvana, you know the Nirvana, right? The big, the big band uh, that had the song Smells Like Teen Spirit, Coco Cobain, and his, and, and the craziness happened with, with that band. You know that story, right? Yeah, yeah, I know all about that. Totally, that's totally the kind of music I'm yeah. into. <laughs> so, so you know the whole the cover. You know the, their album, never mind, right? Album, um, so the put the baby in that never mind album is named Spencer Eldon, and he recently filed a lawsuit alleging that the former members of the grunge rock trio, the record companies, artists, and everyone else have violated federal crime. I can't, uh, a federal crime uh, laws uh, causing him a lifelong suffering by trafficking his image worldwide. So he's basically come out and saying they made child pornography of him for yeah. using his photo on the album cover, which I did hear there was um, when Nirvana were discussing the whether they should edit the photo or not. Um, Kirk Cobain said they should include a sticker. That says, if you're offended by this, you're probably a pedophile. 
Hey, and, and, and uh, so Spencer was saying, like, he alleged that his identity and legal name are forever tied to this commercial sexual exploitation experience as a minor, which has been distributed and sold worldwide for the time he was a baby to the present day. Ah, uh, I mean, yeah, okay, I kind of yeah, see his argument, but here's the thing. But he, here's the thing, though. Like this whole image was circulated with the consent of his parents, presumably thirty years ago. Um, yeah, Nirvana bought it from his parents for two hundred bucks. Yeah, uh, actually, it was a photo shoot. Actually, um, okay. Well, they paid his parents two hundred bucks for the photo shoot uh, and the yeah. rights to the photo. Yeah, yeah. So technically, but- he doesn't actually have any rights to the photo. Which I think is why he's going after the um, the uh, child abuse angle. Yeah, but then here's the thing, though. Like he earlier on, he would when when it, when he revealed like he was the baby, like he was proud about it. Until uh, it's not not until like years ago, 2016, he decided to change the tune a bit. Yeah, there's so he's what 30 years old now. Yeah, thereabouts. And up until just a couple of years ago, he, you know, for the first 20 years, we'll cut him some slack because he was a child and not necessarily aware of the implications. But he has also, up until just a couple of years ago, done reenactments of the photo. Uh, he has, never mind, tattooed on his chest. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's and- uh, he's done. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so it's coming across to me as a um, lawsuit for the money rather than for the actual principle of putting a naked baby on an album cover. Yeah, and uh, I was I was watching a couple of law videos about this, and here's the thing. Here, here are a couple of arguments, okay? Uh, so it's 30 years ago, not sure there's there, there isn't really a federal statute of limitations when it comes to this risque material but the real issue is that the As guy knew be. yeah and there's the real issue is that the guy knew about this entire picture the whole time and plus there was a whole the guy was compensated and the uh if this was a commercial um i can't say char- I, I can't say i can't say those two the the spicy words uh it, if this was a very spicy image everyone's complicit in it like every you music mean child pornography yeah, yeah words okay. I literally said like two minutes ago. <laughs> that's or true. Or CSAM, CSAM, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, I think the thing is they they say um, child sex abuse material or something now because I think the reasoning is that pornography has a connotation of being legal or consensual yeah. because it's in. A lot of the world, it is legal yeah. and consensual, apart from you know revenge porn and all that. But um, yeah. so advocates now want people to call it uh, CSAM to make it seem more serious. I think. Yeah, and here's the thing: like, if this was a, ch- a commercial um, child por- uh, pornography stuff, then everybody's complicit. In it. Like every music distributor, music retail store. Everybody yeah, the whole who band, has the, his parents, yeah, his every so basically everybody who has the album, which would be like millions and millions of people, <laughs> would have this album. Uh, and, there's also the argument. There's um, 
are parents who take pictures of their children who happen to be naked because kids hate wearing clothes apparently and I'm pretty sure every parent has photos of their children like as babies naked does that count as CSAM or not oh yeah it's um something Some... I've heard a bit of debate about it personally I think it's not because it's not sexualized it's non-sexual nudity yeah yeah that's but a, that, that, and, and what that's... his argument is is that the album cover cover is sexualized and do you know the reason why <laughs> have you heard this quote yet dj no <laughs> i don't think i have so the photo famously shows him chasing after a dollar attached to a fishing hook yeah he says that the presence of the money and the baby chasing the money makes it prostitution. I've, I've heard that one. Yeah, uh, that's what I've heard. I've heard another uh, um, interpretation of that this whole uh, baby chasing the money is a, is a metaphor of um, life being uh, dumped into the deep end and you're chasing the money, in a sense. Yeah, or a criticism of capitalism. It's art. You can interpret it however you want. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, like, I'm not a big fan of Death of the Author, but realistically, you can interpret art however you want. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, there is, and and, and the other thing is, uh, it doesn't really meet the definition of child pornography in the federal in the federal sense in America, where the definition um, from the legal videos I've seen is basically a picture, image, or video or representation of said material. That is sexually ex- explicit, which does not require a child to be excha- engaged in a sexual act, but it does require some level of intent for the image to be sexualized. The image, the intent behind the image is to derive a sexual pleasure, basically. So it's hard to, it's a, it's a, it's, this, it's hard to argue that the album fits that definition. I mean, yeah, you're right. That, there is, it's open to interpretation. And those people who do find the who find that really uh, who find that thing really uh, pleasant, um, yeah, should 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 deserve a bullet. Yeah, I think if you're looking at, I think like uh, Kurt Cobain said, if you're looking at a non-sexualized picture of a naked baby, and thinking that's pornography, it yeah. falls on you. Yeah, and, saying that's uh, probably going to piss off some people listening, but if that pisses you off. That falls on you. Yeah, yeah, and and the stupid part about this whole fo- this whole um d- debacle as well is he's done this multiple times. Like he's done this when he was a ten year old. He's done this when he was a thirty. He's done twenty year old. Like there's multiple images of him doing it. Yeah. So the first couple, you know, he's a child and doesn't understand the gravity of it. But there are also reenactments he's done as an adult, which I think um kind of show that I think that supports that this is a bit frivolous because it shows that it's only just now that he's suddenly got a problem with it and that's why he's trying to sue and he probably wants some money for it which yeah. understandable a photo of you has gone around the world and you got 200 bucks for it um, I mean I, I mean if, see if he was to basically say like I, I feel like I should be paid more for the uh, for, for the artwork and stuff, then yeah, sure, fine, okay, he should be paid yeah. more for the royalties and stuff. But this feels like yeah, <laughs> a, 
And plus, I, mind yeah, you, this I is, agree. Is, yeah. And mind you, this is 15 named defendants for 150k each. That's, yeah, that just, that just, defendants. Off. so that would be the band, the distributors, uh, agencies, the... the studios, stuff like that, I assume. Yeah, yeah. So everyone that got involved, basically. The photographer to the parents. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's suing his parents? <laughs> no, I don't think so, but I, I, I wouldn't run pa- I w- I wouldn't pass that run past that though. <sighs> but Yeah, that kinda of wouldn't surprise me at this stage. Yeah. He's but it does also Yeah, but it also does it uh, there is an interesting argument. You know those um like what about those child actors and their uh and when they acted in movies and stuff, you reckon they'll be uh we might see this kind of a lawsuit as well? Um, I think from the aspect of should probably have been paid more royalties, yes. But I think it's hard to argue that many other movies with children in them are CSAM. Because, like, this is fairly obvious. It's a naked baby. You can make the argument that it's sexualized with his frankly ridiculous argument that a naked baby trying to grab some money is a prostitute. Um, But, you know, some movie with children in it, uh, Jumanji, there's no nudity in that, obviously. Uh, The Parent Trap, there's no nudity in that. So I think maybe you'll see people arguing that they should have gotten more royalties, which is the same sort of lawsuit that Scarlett Johansson is taking against Disney at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually um, just selling the rights for the photo outright was probably a bit of a mistake on his parents' part because... You know, royalties on that photo, even if it's only a small percentage, would be a pretty tidy amount at this point. 30 years of selling one of the most well-known albums? Oh, I wouldn't say no to that money. Sell- imagine if he sold that th- uh, sold the original, original cover as an NFT. That would have made him a lot more money. Oh, not NFTs. Don't bring that up again. We finally got rid of them. <laughs> People finally stopped talking about NFTs. Don't make them come back. That's so wasteful. <laughs> That's so wasteful and pointless. But yeah, if he, uh, uh, if, did you see the picture that he's done these reenactments, by the way? Uh, yes, he's in the um, wearing his shorts this time. Yeah, yeah. Because it is a lot more controversial to see a grown man naked than it is to see a naked baby. Uh-huh. But I think it ultimately comes back to the same sort of argument over breastfeeding in public. It's non-sexual nudity, so why are you complaining? Yeah. And plus, the album was supposed to be an artist's impression to just to lower that to a, a debate about to, to a debate about uh, pornography and stuff. That just... Yeah. That... Um, I think it's a um, an important discussion to have because... You don't want to see somebody taking photos of naked children, sexualizing them, and then saying, it's okay, it's art. Because in that case, you know, the children are still being abused. But in this case, I don't think there's any real abuse going on. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, uh, we'll wrap up our political segment (laughs) there. But speaking, (laughs) speaking of babies... Have you ever played Roblox, DJ? No, but I've been, I, I do watch a couple of Roblox videos. 
Okay. Hopefully not those weird role-playing ones made for, like, six-year-olds. Nah, nah, nah. I, I watched the fun ones, like the uh, world's biggest slide and, yeah, th- those crazy ones. Okay. Well, it's uh, uh, obviously designed for reasonably young children, but people have been making mass shooting replicas in Roblox. And that just reminds me of something that's been happening basically since games have been a thing, even when it hasn't happened. Uh, You might remember that the Columbine shooters were accused of making a copy of their game in Doom, a copy of their school, sorry, in Doom, and practicing in Doom, which is totally realistic. (laughs) Train for shooting up the school, which turns out didn't happen. They never actually made the map. Yeah, I heard it was a bit of a fake. It was a non-troversy. Like they were, they they play. They were big fans of Doom and Quake. Yeah, but... which isn't a bad thing. But if I'm remembering correctly, um, the uh, oh, actually, there, there, there was there a might have level. actually <laughs> been a map of. Yeah, uh, looks like yeah. No, so they did make maps, but, um, okay. Eric Harris did say that he had created a map of the school in Doom, um, but that map has been lost to time. But I wouldn't, I think it's pretty silly to say that Doom is a a training tool. But anyway, um, people were replicating mass shootings like uh, the Christchurch shooting in Roblox which is aimed at young children, unlike Doom, which is very clearly not. So Roblox uh, say they removed it as soon as they it was brought to their attention and suspended the user who created it. And along with a generic, we do not tr- tolerate racism, discrimination, blah, 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 blah. Um, and they have a stringent safety and monitoring system, which is continuously active. But I do keep hearing about Roblox missing things like that. So... <laughs> Um, I think, honestly, I don't think, um, Roblox has enough people moderating content. They don't seem to have that much content being actively uploaded. Anyway, that's one Roblox story. I I mean... You've probably heard the... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, um, I mean, it's also a, it's also a dying game in a sense. I mean, yeah, sure. There is, there is a big following but it's not as big as like uh say minecraft for example uh actually this article says um 43 million daily active users okay so maybe there is more content being pumped out than i thought uh probably is but um at one point i was looking at using roblox to do some prototyping and maybe create a little game and put it out there and see if i could make any cash off it but it turns out Roblox has one of the worst uh, creator share um, percentages in the industry. So we've all talked about how Steam and um, Epic take a 30% cut. Well, 30% is pretty standard. Uh, let me just pull up the article again because it's decided to close itself. So, yeah, on Steam, you make 70% of your revenue. On Epic, you get 88%. Uh, on Apple and Google, also seventy percent. On Roblox, you get twenty-four and a half percent. Ah, how wow. is there such a big gap? <laughs> Why is Roblox so 
bad at paying their creators. Because Roblox as a game probably wouldn't exist without the creators. I mean, what do they t- what do they spend the remaining on? Is it like I don't know, but the interesting thing is, um, they have a way to push your game to the top of the discovery algorithm. It highlights a thousand or so games on the front page, and you can pay Robux, which is the in-game currency bought with real-world money, um, to feature the game on the front page by bidding for an ad slot. So we've got a game targeted at children that children can easily create in that pays bugger all and then demands more money uh, with a an auction system, which is you know getting up towards um, getting up towards a kind of gambling, and then your game isn't guaranteed to be successful. Uh, to actually make money from Roblox, you need to be a Roblox Premium subscriber, which costs five dollars a month. Damn, this game. Th- this game is like a a ramped up version of Fallout seventy six. It's just nickel and diming you all the way to the bank. <laughs> it's like, are oh, you want to add in a new player? Uh, money, please. Yeah, I think that's ridiculously exploitive. But uh, yeah, with the whole uh, like replicating shootings and stuff, like. It's 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 stupid that they're doing that though. Like, why why do you want to replicate that? Why do you want to replicate it in the game and and put and post it out to the to the entire world? Like, uh, some people are messed up. Yeah, uh, I think that sort of stuff starts with a, a messed up mind to begin with. Yeah, and the, and the stupid part about this whole thing is that we were earlier talking about how video games violence is it, it, it it's. It it doesn't really exist, and yet here we are, just like there's this person <laughs> doing something. Yeah, well, I think if you're creating a map based on a real world event, there's probably also something going on there. Although the there are people who made um, the Super Columbine Massacre RPG, which I have played a bit of, and it is a game inspired by the Columbine Massacre, where you play out the, the massacre in the role of the killers. They, um, I saw it at a, a Games as Art exhibition, which was about, you know, sort of pushing the limits of what can be considered art. But I think you've got to be a little bit cuckoo to actually want to do that in the first place. And I can definitely see the concerns of glorifying real-world criminals. Curiously, I'm just though, astounded at how exploitive Roblox is. From a game developer's perspective, though, whenever you see these incidents like that, and seeing how exploitative the um the platform is, like, do you ever get the whole idea that, yeah, I really hate game development at times? At times, yes. I'm frankly very pissed off that Roblox is doing this because. Especially in the last couple of years, there's been a big push to pay the um, developers better. And if Epic and Steam can afford 30% or less of the revenue, why does Roblox feel the need to take 25, 75.5% of the uh, revenue from developers? You also can't cash out until you have about a thousand real world dollars in your Robux account. <laughs> so this um, is ransom 
This is daylight robbery. Yeah. They're basically putting you out to create a content for them and then making it extremely difficult to actually make any money off that content. And I think that's wrong. Roblox wouldn't be the massive cultural hit it is if people couldn't create content for it. So they're just taking their content creators and milking them for all their worth. The, the interesting que- the question would be, though, are they using, you know, these, um, are they using the school shooting um, reenactments as ways to get money off? Uh, actually, the article doesn't say whether the school shooting, sorry, the massacre, Christchurch, Christ, Christchurch massacre uh, was monetized or not. Oh man! If it was monetized, oh lord, there yeah. there would have been a there would there you would have seen a lot of people get really cheesed off at them. That would have probably made it even worse. Oh yeah, I mean YouTube has some very strict content as well. Like if you were to uh, like reenact all these like events and stuff like that, they will stamp, they will crush you down hard. And why you got to be like this, Roblox? So, moving forward from this, though, do you reckon we should see more and more control over game development as in general when it comes to recreating real-world events kind of thing? Like, let's say, uh, okay, Columbine Massacre, bad. But uh, let's say if you want to recreate, for example, the... Oh, how, what name a big event that's... Uh, okay, um, Pearl Harbor, for example. Not so bad because Pearl Harbor isn't in living memory anymore. But it, but it's it's a real world event nonetheless. But nobody remembers it happening, like apart from a handful of people. But we're approaching uh, what eighty seventy nine years, I think, since Pearl, Pearl Harbor, and that means that anyone who was old enough to actually remember Pearl Harbor is approaching the average life expectancy. So I think it like. As a bit of a joke, tragedy plus comedy, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And things being too soon, like 9-11, too soon. Pearl Harbor, not too soon. Uh, Vietnam, there are games about Vietnam, not too soon. Because those are the sorts of things where um, the people involved are less likely to be around anymore. Um, Whereas, so... There are games set in the Middle East wars, which themselves are a bit iffy because a lot of people, you know, Afghanistan only just ended after 20 years. So all these games that have come out in the past 20 years in the Middle East have been about wars that people have actually lived through and are still alive. Um, the And sometimes those games try to tackle real world events there, which they don't do very well. Um, Six Days in Fallujah, or Fallujah, I'm not sure if you pronounced the J in that, um, is coming out soon after nine years since they put it on hiatus. Uh, the developers say they don't think they need to show the atrocities in one of the most controversial wars in the past century. And I think that's the wrong way to go about it. I think if you're going to represent a event like that artistically you need to acknowledge the atrocities um in this case they're just taking specifically taking the battle of fluja which is a very significant battle um and kind of making light of it 
the new, well, it's a couple of years old now, but one of the newer CODs had the Highway of Death, which was when the Americans um, bombed a massive column of retreating soldiers uh, during the First Iraq War, I think, which an absolute bloodbath. Hundreds of people died, um, and there are still people who would have lived through that because it was only 30 years ago. Uh, but then they, the newer COD game called that a Russian atrocity, which I think is absolutely bloody ridiculous and just downplays the severity of it and basically says that the US can't commit um, atrocities. So I'm getting off on a tangent, but I think if you're going to make a game about a war then or an atrocity like the Columbine Massacre, then you need to acknowledge the atrocity and deal with it artistically rather than trying to paper it over or make it look like the other guys did it. Yeah, yeah. And there is an, and also it makes it putting, making these sorts of things, you're making, it's also, uh, you're making, you're glorifying the event rather than. Yes, glorifying the event. That's the other thing that I'm concerned with. Um, I think you can, there's a way to handle, so I think the further you get from living memory, the more leeway you can have with, um, the more leeway you can have with creating a less accurate portrayal. So the Battle of Hastings, you can make a game about that and could do, kind of do whatever you want with it. And I don't think you'd, um, really offend anyone i don't think you'd be doing too much of a disservice to the people involved but i think um yes there there is an element where you can glorify an atrocity and i think as game devs we need to be careful not to do that when we're creating art based around real world events because the people in those events are real people they have real lives and real stories to tell about the events and um we um we need to be careful how we handle it so that we're not dismissing the issue or harming the people who are involved. But I've gotten way off on a tangent there. Um and should probably get back to a advertising break and then on to our shout outs and events of interest. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So for our shout-outs this week, we have on the 21st of August 2021, Nick Davitzis, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that, <laughs> uh, the founder of the A&E Network and History Channel. He passed away uh, the in Wilton, Connecticut. I remember uh, we used to have the History Channel in the early 2000s, and my grandpa still has Foxtel and... Wow, it's gone downhill. Really? How so? 
Yeah, so it used to be a lot of documentaries. These days, it's either all documentaries about World War II, um, so it gets the name The Hitlery Channel. <laughs> uh, although they don't call themselves History Channel anymore, now they just call them History. Uh, and alternatively, the they have crazy stuff like Bigfoot hunting, um, Oak Island money pit digging. Really? That's a thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So basically, reality TV shows pretending to be history. I wonder how. Like, I wonder what Nick would actually think of this, um, because he promoted educational outreach. Uh, Bob Iger actually said he was a towering figure in the early days of cable television, who helped build some of the most iconic brands in the media landscape. He was a person of true integrity. I love a good, uh, good documentary though. Yeah, there. And uh, I, uh, I mean, even on. though history has gone into a, uh, has gone into, even though history has gone into a uh, reality TV sh- uh, territory, there are some good shows in there. Um, I've been, I, I got addicted into a uh, Forged in Fire. Man, that show is addictive. Where it's just okay, a, a it's guys not, building. Uh, it's not really history, though, is it? It's a yeah. reality show. Yeah, yeah, that's the downside, yeah. Yeah, it's more of a reality show than a history show. Sure, Making Swords is historical, but it's a thin veneer over the actual substance of the show, which is a reality TV competition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, On the 24th of August, the drummer from the Rolling Stones, who would probably kill me for saying that, Charlie Watts passed away at 80. So the reason I say he would probably kill me if I call for calling him the Rolling Stones drummer is that he once was woken up in the middle of the night by Mick Jagger, who wanted to speak to his drummer. He shaved, had a shower, got dressed in a suit, went down to Mick's room, and punched him in the face. (laughs) He said, don't ever call me your drummer again, and went back to bed. (laughs) It's like all that time shaving and dressing up a suit, it was like... Yep, <laughs> screw that. I'm gonna... That's a lot of effort just to go and punch someone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently, uh, he risked. He... So in 2003, he expressed regret about that incident, attributing his behavior to alcohol. <laughs> well, probably also being woken up at like 2 a.m. <laughs> um, yeah. There, um... there, there were some other um, incidents as well. Like uh, there was one time that he, the, the band got into, invited to the uh, Playboy Mansion. And uh, while while everyone was uh, frolicking with women, Watts took advantage of his game room. (laughs) Like arcade games? uh, I think he meant like the the trophy game kind of thing, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he never fit, he quoted, I've never filled the stereotype of the rock star. And uh, in the 1996 interview. No, it's an arcade. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Filled with pinball and arcade machines, a pool table. You can find pictures of it online. Nice, nice. And in uh, 1996, he said that he had he had sketched every bed that he slept on while on tour since 1967. Weird hobby, but okay. <laughs> yeah, but he wasn't really a fan of the pop the lifestyle, wasn't he? No, he sounds like an interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. Definitely not a stereotypical rocker. Yeah, he wasn't really interested in the girls screaming at him and being chased by girls. 
He also collected cars, even though he didn't drive, and would just <laughs> sit in them in the garage. <laughs> and on the 25th of August, Linux turns 30. You have spelled that wrong, DJ. It's Linux. <laughs> Not Linus. Or Linus. I think it's actually pronounced Linus, which technically makes it Linux, because it's Linus's Unix. Uh, and But I first learned about Linux Linux before I knew how to um, pronounce his name the way he likes it. And uh, it's indelibly stuck in my mind that it's not Linux. Um, so it was sort of a spin-off of Unix. He wanted it to be compatible, but he planned it to be free and open source. And he says that if he'd planned it better, he wouldn't have called it Linux because... There we go. I just did it again. Uh, he wouldn't have called it that because he didn't want people to think he was an egomaniac. <laughs> he planned to call it Freaks, I think is how you would say that. F-R-E-A-X. But the first Linux administrator said that was silly, so they changed it back to Linux, uh, even without knowing what Linus would have wanted. It's pretty crazy that um, it's come from just a bit of a hobby he had to literally the most common operating system on Earth because it's on every Android phone. It runs on a bunch of embedded systems. Microsoft wish they could have that much for each. I don't understand, though. Like, even though Linux is more well, more known than Windows and Mac, why hasn't Linux got all the credit slash wealth from it? Because there's no wealth to make from it. It's a free program. Yeah. The wealth comes from things like uh, Red Hat, um, which basically the Red Hat company um, created a custom Linux distribution, which had custom software, and they maintain it and offer support on a subscription, of course. Uh, the money to make is from supporting Linux, not for developing it. Although it does turn out that the majority of Linux devs are actually paid to do it because there's a lot of value in supporting Linux. Not just from Red Hat, uh, the NSA has supported it as well. They created uh, security-enhanced Linux, and that's mostly been backported into the main branch. Not that I'm sure I would normally trust the NSA, but since it's all open source, uh, everyone has an opportunity to have a look. I do wonder, though, there's so many lines of code, how many of them have actually been reviewed by people. And for our remembrance, we have William Herschel on the 25th of August, 1822. He was a German-born British astronomer and composer. He collaborated with his younger sister and fellow astronomer, Caroline Lucretia Herschel. He constructed his first large telescope in 1774 and spent nine years uh, carrying out sky surveys to investigate double stars. In 1802, he published a catalogue of two and a half thousand nebulas, expanding that to 5,000 by 1820. And his telescope model was so good that he could tell that nebulae in the Messier catalog, so back then there was no central repository of star data, uh, but the Messier catalog counted as nebulae what were actually clusters of stars. So a nebula is a cloud of dust, basically. And on the 13th of March, 1781, he discovered a new object, which is a planet with the most embarrassing name, Uranus. No, it's Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
it was the first planet to be discovered since antiquity. So up until Uranus was discovered, or Uranus, if you want to pronounce it that way, so you don't say anus, <laughs> um, all of the other planets were known to ancient people. And that's why many of them have Roman names. The Romans knew about most of the planets. As a result of the discovery, George III appointed him court astronomer. He was elected a fellow of the Royal Society and pioneered astronomical spectro spectrophotometry using prisms and temperature measuring equipment to measure the wavelength distribution of stellar spectra, which is really interesting because there's lots of things you can tell by looking at the wavelength of the light coming from a stellar object. Uh, you can tell what kind of gas it's made up of, what temperature the star is. It's all really cool. He also discovered infrared radiation. Uh, the discovery of Titania and Oberon, moons of Uranus, uh, named after Shakespeare's um, Midsummer Night's Dream, and Enceladus and Mimas, moons of Saturn. He was made a knight of the Royal Guildfic Order, I think, in 1816 and was the first president of the Royal Astronomical Society. He died at the age of 83 at Observatory House, and his epitaph is Colorum Parapet Claustra, which is Latin for He Broke Through the Barriers of the Heavens. Ah, oh, what a nice epitaph. That's a great epitaph. On the same day in 1819, so a bit of overlap here, Alan Pinkerton was born. Now, he's best known for creating the Pinkerton Detective Agency. He first became in interested in detective work while wandering through the groves around Dundee looking for trees to make barrel staves when he ran into a band of counterfeiters. After observing their movements, he informed the local sheriff. He became the first police detective in Chicago. In 1850, he founded the Northwestern Police Agency, which later became Pinkerton & Co., and finally Pinkerton National Detective Agency, which is now known as Pinkerton Consulting and Investigations. The Pinkerton logo was a wide-open eye with the caption, We Never Sleep. <laughs> they're, they're famous for solving train robberies. He was also head of the Union Intelligence Service during the U.S. Civil War, uh, protecting Abraham Lincoln from assassination and identifying troop numbers in military campaigns. Which all sounds all fine and dandy, but it turns out that all this work he did training agents has led to the Pinkertons, now being Union Busters. Oh. Yeah. Apparently Pinkerton was pretty pro-labor as a young man, uh, although he dis opposed strikes and dr distrusted unions. And now Pinkertons are hired by companies like Amazon and Facebook to break up union uh, people. They're um, not the most popular people among the uh, left-leaning society, can you imagine the Pinkertons at Riot Games and Blizzard Entertainment? Um, actually, did Blizzard hire them? I think Blizzard might have hired them. I vaguely remember seeing this the other day. Um, um, yes, back in July, uh, they hired the Pinkertons. Oh! Which, you know... It's a pretty obvious sign that you're going to try to stop your workers unionizing at this point. But they hired them to do an internal investigation. <laughs> Whatever that means, which could totally just be investigating employees likely to form a union. Not to mention suppressing evidence as, as recently revealed. Yes. 
the uh, the Blizzard uh, executive team should all stand down, as well as Eves uh, Gillamit from Ubisoft. Are there any game developers who aren't horrible people anymore? Me. <laughs> I've just got to actually get around to releasing another game. <laughs> and for our event of interest on the 25th of August 1957, the film The Invisible Man vs. The Human Fly released. It's a Japanese film by Mitsuo Muriyami, starring Ryuji Shin- Shinagawara and Yoshiro Kitahara. And the plot summary, a serial killer with a peculiar method of stalking and killing his victims comes face-to-face with a police officer turned invisible by a scientific experiment. (laughs) This is like King Kong versus Godzilla all over again. (laughs) It's like, who will emerge triumphant? Yeah, in, um, in English, it was called The Murdering Might. And... Uh, the movie known in the West as The Fly, the famous one where Jeff Goldblum turns himself into a fly accidentally. That is a great movie. Horribly gory, but great. I remember seeing it once when I was um, home alone and then the sequel was on because it was a movie marathon and my parents walked in during the only sex scene. <laughs> And that's how uh, the professor the, um, became the professor. <laughs> the Fly was released in Japan as Fear of the Fly Man. <laughs> the Invisible Man vs. the Human Fly predates the... Oh no, I'm thinking of a different The Fly movie. Uh, I'm thinking of the one from the 80s. The one we're talking about here is the one from 1958. So the Invisible Man vs. the Human Fly beat The Fly by a year. Ah... I haven't seen the original The Fly, but I understand it's a lot less uh, body horror because he actually just gets turned into a fly rather than going through the whole slow transformation. And finally, on the 25th of August, 1989, Voyager 2 made its closest approach to Neptune. At the time, Neptune was the last planet in the solar system because Pluto passes within the orbit of Neptune. So the observations from Voyager 2 were able to prove that there was no unseen planet, although that idea has come back into um, back in vogue recently. But the um, yes, the orbits of Uranus and Neptune were incorrectly calculated because the mass of them was incorrectly measured. The Voyagers are some of my favourite spacecraft. I love the um, the stuff they've got on there, like. The map to find Earth is just really interesting to me because it's like if you were trying to communicate with someone, I think it's why the movie Arrival clicks for me so well. Because if you're trying to communicate with aliens with no common language and no common experience, how would you do so? Turns out the uh, the best scientists we have decided that the answer was um, measuring the uh, rotation of pulsars to find the Earth and communicating time by using the uh, frequency of a helium atom. You can actually find recordings of the golden records on uh, on the internet too. But that's all we have for tonight. Where can they find us, DJ? Uh, they can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, thatsuckcanon.com. We have an archive of our old, episode, old episodes. And they can also find some... New That's Not Canon podcast, such as WTF is Happening, the podcast. Uh, 
Join us, Maddie and Nick, as we rant about the latest film, TV, music, and pop culture moments. We're overflowing with opinions, both valid critiques and downright ridiculous pet peeves. So come along for the role, because it's sure to be hilarious. Sounds fun. Well, that's all we have for tonight, so look after yourself, stay hydrated, and we'll see you next time. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.